Coming to you live from Caged In Towers, we present to you this very special festive edition of the Caged In Podcast with your host, Petros Patsilovus. We've got some extra special festive treats up our sleeve for you, so a Merry Christmas, one and all. Sit back, relax, enjoy, pull yourself a nice glass of eggnog, and wait for old Saint Nick to come down that chimney. So sit back, relax, and prepare to rage with Cage. "'Twas the night before Christmas. He loses his shit in a rage. Once more, I'm talking about Nicolas Cage. Oh, sorry, I didn't see you there. Oh, do, 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 do come in. I'm just currently sat here waiting for St. Nick to arrive. The fire is roaring like the Ghost Rider's skull. The peach is laid out for when he arrives. The bunny is firmly in the box, wrapped and under the tree. Oh, who could that be at the door? Could it be festive well-wishers? Carol singers? Let's find out. Oh, it's only return guest and host of your favourite Trek Detectives podcast, Spotlight, Liam Dempsey. How are you, Liam? It's Christmas! (laughs) Hello, sir. How are you doing? Merry Christmas. Merry, merry fucking Christmas to you. Merry Cagemas. I think I think we uh, should probably brandish this special. This is the the Cagemas. May have just broken my mic there. I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is this is the Cagemas special after all. And uh, for all the listeners at home, I've invited Liam over to my to my, to my humble abode. As I said, the fire's roaring. We've got we've got a pit, picture the scene. We've got a lovely fire going, uh, nice festive decorations, a couple of wing-back chairs, swilling down a couple of whiskies, and we're, we're going to talk about two adaptations of A Christmas Carol, one being the 2001 Christmas Carol, the movie, which probably sounds like the most know, manufactured, like, gross title for A Christmas Carol. Just call it A Fucking Christmas Carol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the Richard Donner 1988 uh, kind of spin on the classic, Scrooged. Uh, as, as, yeah, so um, before we get into it, Liam, what is your kind of relationship with A Christmas Carol? Do you, are, you, are you a fan of the story? Yeah, oh, definitely, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm a fan of Dickens in general. Um, you know, he is an absolute fucking master. One of the first ever authors to talk about the plight of the working class in Britain and yeah I mean for that I think he's you know a pretty landmark writer there's a reason you know his stories get continuously adapted like time and time again and Christmas Carol is probably the most adapted of all of his stories I would have thought um, you know there's, there's been so so many kind of versions of this and I've seen a lot of them um, and there are, I, I, I like quite a few. And the thing is, there's not just the ones that are straight adaptations of Christmas Carol. There are then all these spins on it that take the kind of basic trappings of Christmas Carol 
and lay them out in a different way, like Scrooge and like many others. Even my favourite film of all time is It's a Wonderful Life. And It's a Wonderful Life, although it isn't a straight adaptation of A Christmas Carol, definitely takes a lot from Christmas Carol in terms of the kind of story it's telling. Well, it's very interesting as well that Nicolas Cage went to be in The Family Man, which is almost a watered-down version of It's a Wonderful Life. And, like, the story of A Christmas Carol can be seen throughout cinema, whether it's a Christmas film or not, that kind of hero's journey from a... Um, like a, a miser, or, or do you know what I mean? Somebody, somebody who, 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 who is a shit to people and then learns yeah. the errors of their ways. We see, like, trotted out time and time again. And yeah, yeah, it doesn't even need to be that. That is kind of just a set text of kind of, you know, someone who, like I say, seems, like, mean-spirited or whatever, and then by the end is redeemed, essentially. It's like, you know, the redemption story uh, it, in many ways. Have you got any personal favourite um, adaptations of A Christmas Carol, like, in its purest form? As Muppet Christmas Carol, Patros, obviously. Well, yeah, that, like, is, that is, is the correct answer. That is the correct it's answer. It's like, how, how do you improve one of the greatest stories ever told? Put Muppets in it. Basically, that, that's, that's literally it. Um, if you want to go completely straight um, adaptation, then uh, the Alistair Sim version um is incredible which i think is just called scrooge i think um but that is that is excellent black and white um version that's there's really really uh brilliant adaptation um and uh, but christmas carol muppets christmas carol um you know surprisingly actually does use a lot it's pretty faithful considering it's got muppets in it uh, mm-hmm. It's got a lot of the original text dialogue in it and stuff like that, and some bits of dialogue that aren't used in any of the ad- other adaptations and stuff. So it is, it is great, and it is just a brilliant. It's a brilliant film, a brilliant adaptation, and great fun, and incredible songs as well. I mean, that is an absolute bona fide Christmas classic. So you know. So, so I watched it for the first time with my son. I've, I've watched it plenty of times in my life, but like yeah. I showed my son it on the weekend. And, okay. Like, he absolutely loved it. Like, like. It's How like old is your son now? Two years old. So, like, uh, after the okay. Marley and Marley song, he's there going, Marley, Marley, and I was like, I've, I've, I've won. I've won at parenting. I've managed to like <laughs> incept his mind with Muppets Christmas Carol. And he's he like, didn't find Marley and Marley scary. No, no, he like he is my son after all. So like, it's probably like <laughs> I remember the the first Christmas, like because there's this kind of weird thing that you I saw it as like carte blanche to watch whatever. They're like because they do like parent and baby screenings up until they're one years old. So right. and it's like so they'll show like eighteens at the cinema. And you can yeah, the because. Kids. They, the idea, I suppose, is they can't take it in. That yeah, age. yeah, yeah. So for me, I was like, "What's gonna like? I'm just gonna watch anything. I'm gonna watch. I'm gonna watch fucking Hellraiser. I'm gonna watch like his first Christmas. He's born in November, so like he would have been a month old. I was like, that's it. He's watching Die Hard, and I'm gonna like ram it down <laughs> his throat for the rest of his life. Like you watch Die Hard when you're a month, month old. Come on. Um, but one of the adaptations of uh, a Christmas Carol. It's bringing to your attention. I'm not sure if you are aware of the 
2001 adaptation of it that is starring Ross Kemp that is set on like yeah, a I, I've seen it. Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah. <laughs> How is it? Like, I was whilst in research for this for this episode, I kind of like looked at all that adaptations. That one came up, and I was like, that sounds crap but brilliant at the same time uh, yeah it was ITV adaptation like um, it's, it's like a two hour kind of TV film um, from the time back when Ross Kemp had his like golden handcuffs ITV deal and they are putting him in loads of trash and um, yeah it's basically he plays like a, a loan shark in like the east end <laughs> of London uh, and then you know, he's obviously it's it's just the Christmas Carol story in, in, in modern day. Uh, I mean, I remember watching it when it came out and kind of enjoying it for what it was. But I mean, it is it's the uh, I would imagine it's a complete like hilarious to watch now. Like in terms of, I mean, it was hilarious to watch then. So, because <laughs> even in recent years, didn't we get like last year or the year before? There's like a Stephen Knight adaptation. That's basically in the same mould as uh, Taboo, basically. Is it yeah, Tom Hardy so in the lead year, or Stephen Graham? Uh, like, yeah, last year Stephen Knight uh, wrote a three-part adaptation for the BBC, um, which I think I actually reviewed um, on... I do uh, reviews for BBC Radio mm-hmm. Sussex and Surrey, and I think I did review it last year. Um, and, yeah, I, I, funny enough, it sounds... This is the thing. The problem with um, reviewing things where you get like sent previews and stuff like that is that often you have a situation where you watch the first episode and you think that was that was really good, but because you've kind of watched it early and you haven't got then you haven't got the next couple episodes going or like there's no deadline to watch the next couple episodes, you never get around to the rest. So I watched the first episode of that and it was it was good. It was very good, incredibly well written. Guy Pierce as Scrooge, um, but yeah, he was he was great, um, and I was like, oh, this is really interesting and kind of caustic, uh, really slow burn and very very dark. Uh, but I just didn't go back to it, so I got reminded of it when we were watching uh, this, and I was like, I've got to go back to that and kind of you know catch back up with it definitely because yeah, it did it, it was really good and really nicely made and stuff but you know it just goes to show you in terms of I remember hearing an interview with Stephen Knight and he was going to do he wants I don't know whether this is still happening um, in the light of current events but he was wanting to do basically loads of adaptations of Charles mm-hmm. Dickens stories um, on TV in his sort of Stephen Knight Peaky Blinders fashion and Christmas Carol was the first one and he said uh, they said oh what's the first one I kind of almost expect him to say something a bit more kind of deep cut in terms of it. He was just like, oh, Christmas Carol. I was like, oh, right, Christmas Carol like, again. <laughs> and then like, I saw the first episode, and I was like, no, this is a, this is a different take on it. So, you know, it's the stories, I think there are certain stories that kind of transcend um, adaptation in terms of the amount of times you can adapt them. Like Shakespeare, obviously. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, in terms of certain texts that you can just go... They're so inspirational and have been kind of had such an effect on the cultural fiction landscape that you can just adapt them time and time again uh, with a with a twist and like you know and tell a new kind of uh, version of it. Um, yeah, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. As we'll discover today. 
Well, that perfectly leads me on to my first question for you this evening, which is, there is a new adaptation in the works, but they haven't yet found a director. All they know is that Nicolas Cage is interested in one of the roles. Who's directing? Who is Nicolas Cage playing? You get to play casting director here, Lee. Okay, well, I mean, obviously, you know, we're going to talk about a, mm-hmm. a version of Christmas Carol uh, today with with Cage in it, in a reasonably small role. But, I mean, I, I personally would like to see Cage as Scrooge. Because I actually think he's he's well suited to that role. Um, I think he could do it really, really well. It's, it's funny when I was actually watching. Um, what when it came to me was more when I was watching Scrooged with Bill Murray, and I was like, "Oh, I can imagine Cage doing this role." Mm-hmm. Like, and um, yeah, I, I can totally um, imagine doing either a modern adaptation in a more kind of Scrooge fashion, um, or uh, I can imagine him doing the old school, kind of like, you know, the period. I can imagine him as Scrooge. I, I can see it. And I do think, I, I think he'd be good. I think he would really do well at that role. Have you seen that photo that's kind of circles uh, online, like, occasionally, of Nicolas Cage and his son in London, and Cage is dressed in almost like a Dickensian way. He's got this kind of like fur-lined jacket on with like a, a bowler hat and he's got a cane. And like, as the moment I saw that, I was like, that's it. That's my Scrooge baby. I was like, that's it's just what I want. Tiny Tim. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. He's got this uh, like uh, Asian-American kid in a Superman t-shirt because he's like, your name's Kal-El. <laughs> You've got to wear a Superman t-shirt. Come on. Um, so... <laughs> On to my next question is, which Nick Cage character of all the films he's been in that you've seen would you invite over for Christmas dinner, Liam? Who, who are you spending Christmas with? Oh, my God. Um, I mean, Cage has played like a lot of crazy characters that I don't think you'd actually want to invite round, to be completely honest. I mean, Castor Troy, at the end of the day, like, I would not want coming round mine um, at all. <laughs> maybe, I mean, but thinking about that, maybe um, him when he's Sean Archer, mm-hmm. maybe. Because, like, actually then he is a good guy. There's, you know, there's nothing that Sean Archer's a completely kind of nice guy. And, like, yeah, I mean, actually, think about it. All the characters he's played, he's kind of primarily played crazy people, scumbags, like, direct... Yeah, you know what? It is um, either, either Sean Archer, when he has Nick Cage's face, <laughs> or um, the guy in It Could Happen To You, because he might share his lottery money with you. He's giving it away. Like, yeah, that, so that, you, you, might, you might be able to convince him. That's perfect. Like, you don't really want a, a Sailor Ripley at Christmas dinner because, like, if he doesn't get the cracker present that he wanted, he's going to pull a knife on someone. Or, like, you, you don't, you'd like, may, maybe Stanley Goodspeed. He might be good. He might be frustrating. At, um, Which one's Trip- Stanley Goodspeed? Which film's that? The Rock. He just might be a bit, like, he might be a bit annoying 
for a yeah. trivial pursuit. Yeah, he might be a bit yeah, he might just be a bit like, I oh, know the answers to the science questions. Oh, fuck off, Stanley. You Mind prick. you, if he's in Sean Archer mode, he might touch your face. Which in 2020 is one thing you yeah, don't it's want. Not good. Not good at all. So, yeah, maybe we'll have to go with the it could happen to you guy. I mean, he is, he is completely harmless, isn't he? And very, very generous. I, I, my personal pick for this question would probably be him as uh, Joe in uh, David Gordon Green's joke. Really? Like, yeah, he seems like a nice enough guy. And, like, he'd probably have a... Like, he'd bring more... his dog round and just set on you. No, like, no, no, because he's coming over as a friend and he's really, like, genial to his friends in that film. And it'd be I like... don't know. Like, I don't know about that. <laughs> like, Joe, like, he, even, like, he's the only person he's... Uh, well, apart from the, the kid he's protecting... The only person he saw, he's sort of friendly with that cop, isn't he? And even him, he seems like he's about to like, kick off any second. Like, uh, he's close to the edge, Petros. I, don't know, I think if you cook the turkey badly or something like that, that'd be it. He'd flip out. <laughs> well, I think the thing is, for me, is because I have all these... I, I, I've got loads of daddy issues bubbling under. I very much see myself <laughs> as, that, as that kid. I would think that he would very much take me under his wing and just be like... Have a couple of beers. Let's smoke some cigarettes on the porch, Petros. It'd be, it'd be, it'd be, a, lo- it'd be a lovely Christmas. Um, so Nick Cage is a man known for kind of being extravagant with his money and buying loads of stuff. But if you were to buy him one gift, Liam, what would it be? What is if money? Money is no object. I'm assuming money is no object at all. I, I buy him back his copy of Action Comics number one that he had to sell when he was having kind of tax problems or whatever it was <laughs> that led him to having to sell Action Comics number one. I'd be like, "Don't, Nick, I've got it for you. It's it's back. Action Comics number one, the original. I'd buy it back for him." That's perfect. And of all of the mad shit he's ever he's ever owned. What would you want him to gift you? Action Comics number one. <laughs> 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 or, I mean, his, his entire comic book collection. Of course, this would have to be proviso on the fact that he can basically give things to me that he's already sold yeah, yeah, yeah. long ago. But, um, I mean, his comic book collection sounded very impressive. Um, when he sold it. So, you know, I think that would be something uh, special to have, definitely, if I could get that back somehow. Well, he's got... he He's, throughout his time, has collected, like, a menagerie of weird and wonderful things. One of them is... Uh, I read in a Interview Magazine article recently that at one point Cage owned a two-headed snake. And um, he was at a party with a load of people in New Orleans, and uh, Werner Herzog was there. And like he kept saying, like, like he was like, "Oh, Nick, we need to put the two-headed snake in in Bad Lieutenant." He's like, "No, no, this is mine. Like, it's staying here." And then Cage turned up to set for that film. And then, like, because, like, Werner was a bit pissed off with him about the whole, like, not putting his snake in the film, it's like, there was just reptiles everywhere. That's why that film is just littered with, like, yeah. 
lizards and all sorts of yeah all these like just just tons and tons of reptiles because like Werner was like well you, you, you're not you're not giving us the two-headed snake I'm just gonna kind of throw this in your face Nick bizarre but you know I wouldn't put anything past Werner at the end of the day mm-hmm. so let's move on to 2001's Christmas Carol the movie good evening Mr. Dickens this is indeed a drink on earth Please welcome Mr. Charles Dickens. I'd like to entertain you with a story of ghosts. Ghosts past, ghosts present, ghosts yet to come. Mend your way see the film to find out the rest um, bug. was this your first time watching this film <laughs> it was my first time but just yes <laughs> uh, but by by the sounds of that it might certainly be your last uh yeah I, in all honesty i, I don't think <laughs> I was forced to watch it for another podcast. Like, in all honesty, it would probably be my last time, yes. What is interesting about it is that... So, the director, Jimmy T. Murakami... Yeah. Has, ...has had a hand in, like... He made a segment for Heavy Metal, the kind of, like, yeah. s- seminal kind of, like, boundary-pushing animation from the 80s. And then also the Snowman. Like he, he, he yeah, was one of the, the supervising director on the snowman. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and also is it when the wind blows as well? Yeah, so like kind of like Raymond Briggs adaptation. He was the main director on When the Wind Blows, and these are kind of like seminal kind of animated kind of films. And he also directed Battle Beyond the Stars, which is a huge cult sci-fi movie as well. Um, so it's not like he is some also ran kind of animation director like he's someone who has been had a hand in some big stuff um and there is a sequence in this film which is very snowman-esque uh when he's being flown around by the ghost of christmas present and the background suddenly become in an illustrated kind of snowman-esque style especially mm-hmm. the bit where they go to visit uh, Wilhelm Defoe and Robert Patterson in the lighthouse <laughs> at one point. Um, like those, that is clearly, and they've even got like a sort of walking the air style song playing in the background during that sequence <laughs> is clearly meant to emulate the snowman, but it, obviously it falls flat on its arse because it just has not got... Um, the same level of artistry that the snowman has. Well, I guess it's that thing as well that there's there's a 
there's a dearth of time between those as well, and like you would yes. have thought anim animation would have moved like miles forward from where it is. It's like that was like that looked great in the snowman, but when it's 2001, like just for instance, you look at like animated films that came out in 2001. This is the same year as Shrek and Spirited Away, and it's like. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, you look at those, like, no Shrek is CG animation, but, like, mm. but, like, Spirited Away as, like, using classical forms of, like, hand-drawn animation, like, in the kind of 2D style, is beautiful. This film is just clunky as fuck, and it's, like, I don't know, there's, like, a kind of... Um, there's a mix of styles in it. There's like a mix of animation styles, but it doesn't seem to the point of like being, uh, this is stylistic. It's like kind of like we've optioned this out to a load of people been like, oh yeah, you do this bit, you do that bit. And then just kind of like thrown it all together. And this is what has come out. And it's like, I don't know. Like at some points I was like, it seems like it's out of sync, but it's like, like, do you know what I mean? Like the kind of mouths moving to what's coming out of their mouths. It's like, no, I just think the animation is really bad. Well, I mean, it's interesting with animation because you were talking about kind of, you know, time moving on and stuff. But with animation, I think, unless we're talking kind of CGI, where there is an obvious progression in terms of what you can achieve, um... Uh, with animation, a lot of time, I, don't, I think the kind of time is is slightly immaterial because a lot of the benchmarks for animation are still in those early Disney films mm -hmm. of yes. the kind of late thirties, early forties, which still look absolutely incredible. Like you know, um, if you go back to Pinocchio, uh, with the whale sequence, or even something like Sleeping Beauty, which was incredibly high budget and almost bankrupted the studio at the time. The animation that still looks breathtaking, absolutely incredible. Um, and so, you know, I think it's more to do with the work that's put into it, um, the money that's put into it in order to be able to kind of, you know, secure that kind of grand visual feast. And, you know, uh, this clearly, I mean, it, it looks incredibly televisual. When I say televisual, I mean, like, televisual of the 90s, pre-HBO, mm. kind of, like, taking over The Sopranos and stuff like that, where TV was TV. Uh, I mean, the opening sequence, which is in live action, with uh, Simon Callow um, go and present this, I believe it's in Boston, I think, where he's, mm -hmm. he's going to do a show and kind of do, as Charles Dickens did, he did do on stage kind of shows where he would kind of tell his stories. Um, and, like, just straight away, even that live-action sequence, uh, there's a CGI mouse in that scene who looks horrifically bad. Uh, but but even the, uh, the framing and the staging of those live-action sequences looks so, so low-budget and so, so TV of the 90s. And then the animation... I, I don't think the animation's terrible in this. I don't think it's like embarrassingly bad or anything like that. But it's just not got a huge amount of artistry to it, you know? It's, it's yeah. fine. Functional. Functional is what I call it. Well, the, yeah, the budget for this, so... Depending on where, where you read it, it's either like six six million or right. like 
pounds this is listed as or 12 million dollars but that might be down to the like the glory days of the 90s like i remember well i remember into the 2000s people going like i went on holiday to america and like the exchange rate was amazing. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like, oh, it was. Yeah, it yeah, was. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You'd always have that mate who would come back after summer holidays, being like, "I went to America for the for the summer holidays. And I, I, like, I, t- I, I took twenty dollars with me, and I came back with like all this heaps of stuff or whatever." And I, I, I did it like yeah. in, in the in the even in like the kind of late two thousand, I mean, like two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Like, there was, was a time was like, when it was practically double, so I wouldn't be surprised if that was right. Um, yeah, there was a time when you could go to the states and get literally like a dollar for sixty p. So you know, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that is potentially um, correct. But you know, I mean, this what I will say about this film: it does have quite an all-star cast and you know a lot of the money must have gone on that i would have imagined well yeah it seems like it didn't go on much else because as you say the cast is stacked and especially for that for that time as well so we have yeah as you as you mentioned we have simon callow as dickens and scrooge we have kate winslet as Belle, nicholas cage as marley Jane Horrocks as the Ghost of Christmas Past. Michael Gambon as the Ghost of Christmas Present. Reese Farns as Bob Cratchit. Julia, uh, Juliet Stevenson's as Miss Cratchit. And Mother Gimble. Saving a bit of pennies there, aren't they? They've learned from the Scrooge ways. We have, like, Robert Llewellyn as Old Joe. And it kind of, like... Yeah, it kind of goes... But, like, just that kind of, like, core cast is, yeah. like... It's pretty impressive. And um, is it Michael Gambon has like a relationship to a Christmas Carol as well? You're, I, I know you're a Doctor Who fan, right? He he played Scrooge in the 2010 Doctor uh, Who Christmas yeah. special. So I mean, there's a couple of Doctor Who connections with this, with this because obviously you've got Gambon, um, who yeah, we're talking about versions of Christmas Carol. Uh, yeah, in Doctor Who, um, back in 2010, it would have been, um, the Christmas special, so the first Matt Smith uh, Doctor Who Christmas special, uh, is actually called A Christmas Carol. And it is like a futuristic uh, take with Mal- um, Michael Gammon playing the Scrooge character. Um, and you know it's kind of a Christmas Carol with some added uh, wibbly wobbly timey wimey thrown <laughs> in, uh, and it's it's a really it's a great episode, really really uh, fantastic uh, Christmas special of Doctor Who, probably the best Christmas special of Doctor Who, um, that one, very very. But also of course Simon Callow, who uh, I don't know if you know this, um, but he is a, a, a Dickens expert. Like, you know, he is a proper, a huge authority on Charles Dickens. And he has played him multiple times in many, many different films and TV. I think he, and on stage as well, uh, I think he's played him at least seven times in various different kind of things, um, including in Doctor Who. Um, So when Doctor Who first came back in 2005... Um, in the third episode of the new, because the first one that was a like historical adventure 
um, for the new kind of Who series with Christopher Eccleston. Uh, it was him playing Charles Dickens in an episode called The Unquiet Dead. Uh, and he's kind of in, in that episode playing, and he looks exactly the same as he does in this mm-hmm. film in, in live action. You, you, exactly the same get up uh, as Charles Dickens in The Unquiet Dead. And that is that is a great episode as well. Uh, the ending is proper emotion. Uh, because when it's revealed that the Doctor uh, and Rose are time travellers from the future, Charles Dickens turns around and just says, I've just got one question for you, Doctor. My books, do they last? And <laughs> Doctor turns around and he's just kind of, you know, for, yeah, they last forever. And he's like, oh, my God. Like, and then it kind of almost, it's, I think it's set at Christmas, the episode as well. Um, so yeah, no, that's well worth checking out, and much better than this film. So, <laughs> so do you think that the the story of this adaptation sticks to the to the to the original like text, or does it like deviate wild? Well, I've got to say, this was something I was really surprised by, mostly because of Callow's involvement. Because, like I said, he is like a uh, a Dickens expert an absolute authority on the subject, and this takes major detours from the original text, really changes some key things. And I was surprised that Callow did this. I don't know whether he was really hard up for work at the time or (laughs) something like that, because I would have thought if you were someone who was really dedicated to the text, you would take against the changes they make here, the first of which, and probably the biggest one, a most controversial one, is that obviously you know, people who have seen adaptations of Christmas Carol before will know that Tiny Tim, uh, Bob Cratchit's son, is always depicted as being kind of sickly, um, and you know sometimes he's got a little cane and kind of like all kinds of stuff. And in this adaptation... It is made so that Scrooge is directly responsible for him being unwell. Because at some point, he comes and kind of sings Christmas carols outside his building. And Scrooge throws an entire bucket of ice-cold water directly onto him. Which gives him, it seems to give him like fucking pneumonia or something. <laughs> like, and like, you know, and then literally, and it's, and it's like... What the fuck? Like, so he actually has done that. And I'm kind of... And there's a couple of things they do in this where they seem to be deliberately making Scrooge even worse. Mm -hmm. So there comes the point where, at the end... Because the whole thing is... (laughs) Scrooge, in all other adaptations, is just a bit of a cunt at the end of the day. He's not (laughs) really... He's not evil, you don't get the same. He's just a cunt. Like, I think, like, and just a real horrible kind of like, um, you know, posho kind of shits on the poor and stuff like that. And, but he's, he's not actually doing things that are intentionally malicious. It's just he's, that's the way he kind of is and he needs to change the ways. Whereas in this, he's kind of like a proper conniving, he like, makes Tiny Tim ill. I swear there's a hint that he has kind of essentially um, fucked Fred out of his inheritance at some point. 
he's kind of been involved in that. Yeah. He tries to make like Bell sign a kind of like prenup type <laughs> thing as well. Uh, and he's just like, why are you laying on all these extra things to make him like way, way worse than before? Because it kind of renders his character semi unforgivable by the end. <laughs> you know, it's very odd move to make, I think. Well, it's that thing is like, who is this aimed at? Because like, for the first, like, good, like, section of this film, it's very bleak. Do you know what I mean? Like, you've got, like, the Doctor being raided and being sent off to a prison. It's like, this is, like, obviously I know there's animation for adults, but this is a U-certificate, like, film. And it's like... Yes. And and they've obviously... And the poster is, is a very childlike. Yeah, and, and, and they've got these, like insufferable mouth like mice where they're like you know I mean? yeah. they've got these kind of like mice characters where it's like that's aimed very much at a, a child market but then like when you kind of get into the world of like Dickens's story it's very like it's very bleak do you know what I mean it's very drab it's like they get the tone of that depressing like I know like the Dickensian London is kind of like it's it's all a bit down but like, it's like we mentioned earlier about Muppets Christmas Carol. It's like that does that, but still has like a spring in its step. This is yes. just like if if you're a kid watching this, I could imagine like blanket up to like up to your eyelids going like, what the fuck is going on here? Do you know what I mean? Like they've got to see the doctor, and it's like that's it. Get your fucking workhouse, you prick! <laughs> like, and you got this, you got this old Joe character who, like, I'm not sure if it is he, it, like. I don't know the like original text, but like he's it's kind of like what is he like? His role is greatly expanded from the original text. Yeah, he's like he's like a henchman, isn't he? He's like, he's like going yeah. around going like, yeah. you, you fucking you owe Scrooge some money, getting a fucking workhouse, you slave. Well, it's like, probably <laughs> because old Joe is played by Robert Llewellyn, yeah. who actually co-wrote the script as well, which is bizarre. It's just like Crichton on script duties. I don't know what's going <laughs> on there. Like, because, I mean, it is very weird. Because, I mean, it's, I was looking to see what else he's written. Because as far as I was aware, I think the only other major thing he's ever written is an episode of Red Dwarf. Because <laughs> there's an episode... He's the only cast member who has actually written an episode in uh, scenes of... I think it's called Beyond a Joke. Um... And in that episode, yeah, he, he wrote uh, an episode, which is fine. Uh, it's, it's definitely not one of the kind of better episodes of Red Dwarf, but it's, it's fine. It's not terrible or anything. Um, and then, and now, next, he was like, right, I must go write Christmas Carol the movie while giving myself a greatly expanded role. It's, it's, it's all very bizarre. And, like, I don't know. There's, like... Just so many things about this film and like the kind of rollout of it don't don't make sense to me. Like this premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival. It's like why, why did this premiere <laughs> yeah. at the Toronto International? That's, that's a major film festival. Yeah, yes, really. Yeah, they must have been slim pickings that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> they're like, yeah, they're like, oh, Terrence Malick, he's he's he hasn't got his new one out again. We're gonna have to put on Christmas Carol the movie. <laughs> but um, 
Uh, I mean, it's very odd because that opening you're talking about, where people have been uh, sent off to the poorhouse, is incredibly disjointed. It's like something out of Magnolia. Like, in terms of, like, literally, it keeps flitting, like, between, like, tons of different stories and Scrooge's story, which is the one we're used to, but then keeps coming back to all these different characters being arrested, who, apart from the Doctor, we don't really follow again, so it's like, what was the point? And he just, literally, like you said, he just keep turning up, going, right, you owe money, go away, where you think I... Like, and, like, yeah. and then, like you say, the Doctor... And I found that very odd, because I was just like, yeah, he says, I have patience to treat them, I never buy that at you, I like, yeah, you know, just like some guy on the operating table, oh, yeah, and it just, yeah, absolutely, very, very weird, and like you say, there's no, uh, there's no real levity, or at least um, not levity that's welcome, because we've got these fucking mice at the end of the day, and this is the perfect comparison, bridge because of course... In Muppets Christmas Carol, we have the perfect device of cute mice being cute and funny, because they're mice, but also, because we find them cute and funny, we find it sad when we discover they're Mises with no cheeses. So, you know, it's like, whereas here, it's just these mice are just incredibly annoying. And what is even more bizarre um, is that in this where Scrooge is probably the most evil and nasty he has ever been in any adaptation of this work, I would say. Fucking loves the mice! <laughs> like, literally, like every, he, he, the mice come about him in his home, and he's like, oh, nice to have some company. Uh, I'll, here you go, here's a whole wheel of cheese for you. Uh, we'll sit by the fire and tell stories of Christmas of yore. And he's just like, why is he so nice to the mice? He's like, is he some kind of sociopath or something? Like, better relates to animals than he does, like, other human beings. <laughs> but it's very, very, very bizarre. And, yeah, I don't, I don't get that at all. It just seemed... To, they, there was no character consistency with Scrooge at all. So let's move on to Cage's performance as Marley. Oh, yes. What did you make of it? I've got to be honest, it's... <sighs> It's funny, I actually read quite a lot of reviews of this film, and Cage's performance has got a real mixed reception in the reviews Mm -hmm. I read. Some people are like, Cage is the best thing about the uh, film, and, you know, he should have made the the whole film, the Marley spin-off with with Cage, everything like that. And there's some people like, oh, Cage is really bad in it. And I've got to say, I lean more towards that he's not great in this I think as a voice performance I mean he literally when I was watching it some of the time I was thinking he may as well be going (laughs) (laughs) that's how it came across like the most kind of absolutely cookie cutter like ghost vocal performance like I've I don't have much time, Ebenezer. Little has changed in these chambers since my departure. Ebenezer, I've come to warn you. Well, I think the thing for me is, and I spoke to about a mutual friend of ours, David Trumbull, is like, for somebody who is so bombastic 
and like out there with his performances, it's so muted. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. I, I watched a couple of like DVD extras on this, and like the director's talking, and like one of the kind of like assistants or whatever, like is saying, like, yeah, we got we got Cajun, like we saw him. We saw his performance in leaving Las Vegas. It's like, you fucking so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We wanted him because of leaving Las Vegas. And it's like, okay, like, that's a very down well, I mean, Did they just thing. get him drunk for the role? And that's why he sounds so tired, don't Yeah. But it's like, for somebody who can hit those, like, higher registers of performance, it's like, this is, like you said, it's very much like, Oh, oh, Scrooge, like, oh, change yeah. your way. He's not bothered. He sounds like he wanked it off in about ten minutes and then went, right, get my car. Like, yeah, just, yeah, yeah. he, yeah. And, you know, to be fair, this is one of the things where, well, one thing I will say is you'll often be surprised that the most cheap uh, as chips, shitty animation can get like an all-star cast. There's a there's a huge amount of cases because it is easy fucking work to come in, grab your paycheck, do a day in the kind of recording booth, and then walk away with with your pay. It's super easy. You can do it in your pants if you want. Like literally, come in, get it done, go home. So that's why a lot of animations, even the lower budget ones, tend to get big casts still. Well, yeah, there's like a two, uh, 1998 version of A Christmas Carol that has like an absolute, another like absolutely stacked cast. It's like Tim Curry as Scrooge. And it's like, oh, like I can't think of anyone better for Scrooge. Do you know what I mean? Is like, this Tim another animated one? Another animated one. It's like Tim Curry's in it. I think there's like Whoopi Goldberg's in it. Like, there's, Is like, it just all the whole these... cast of Loaded Weapons? Maybe, yeah, maybe. Like, <laughs> yeah, but, Shatner but, in there as well. But do you know what I mean? It's like, it's like, and then you're like, I think that one is like maybe pushes an hour, so it might not even be, it might be like a TV special, but like, there's that thing of like, yeah, you can just get these people, but like, it's a disappointment for me with Cage, because like, in vocal performances that he's done, like, since this, like, I think this was his first like animated feature. You no, know, no. It was his first animated feature. Since Which then. he's gone on to do quite a bit of now. And he's done it really well. Like, even mm. something like G-Force. Like, at least he's, like, giving an effort into it. He's kind of playing this, like, nasally uh, mole who's kind of, like, a bit like... I don't know. It's, it, it, he's doing something with the role as opposed to here just going, like... I've I've got to be on a plane to Greece in a few hours to shoot Captain Corelli's mandolin. Like, let's get this done. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and it's like it's it, it's it's slightly a disappointment. And like, um, so before we leave this film, Liam, I wanted to talk about this film produced a top ten single. It did in Kate Winslet's What If.
do you know like do you remember this song kind of hitting the airways back in 2001 you know what it's really funny because i do right and when i was I, i did not make the connection at all until i was watching the film last night I knew Kate Winslet was in it, everything. I was just kind of watching, like, monumentally bored by the end. And then, suddenly, Kate Winslet was like, what if I... Yeah, all that kind of stuff, everything. And I was just like, oh, what, that song? And then, immediately, it connected in my head that I was like, oh, shit, yeah, I remember this fucking song coming out. And I do remember that it was from an animated version of A Christmas Carol. Like, in terms of suddenly it all came out. Like, I did know that. I'd just fucking forgotten it over the sands of time. Because I remember when it came out, the video has clips from the film in it. It's one of those classic music videos where they have clips from the film. And I was just like, remember watching it going, oh, what the fuck is that film it's from? Because I don't... I don't even remember this getting released at the cinema or anything like that. And I I know that it did. I know it got a theatrical release Mm -hmm. at the end of the day. So, you know, it did come out. Um, But, like, yeah, I remember that song coming out and it being a big deal. Weirdly, a much, much bigger deal than this film ever was. Um, And because it got to number six in the charts, kept off the top spot by Robbie Williams and Nicole (laughs) Kidman, something stupid. Um, but yeah, like I do, yeah, I do remember it, and I was just like, oh wow, okay, like, yeah, and it's not, it's not a bad, it's not a bad tune. She can, she can hold a tune, good Kate. It's just the, it's just a weird one, isn't it? It's like, was this yeah. her reasoning for doing the film? They're like, can we, we, can, we can part, you know what? We could, like, you can, she, she could do a, yeah, she could. Do, you can you can act in it and you can do the theme song. Come on, come on, Kate. Like. But he's bizarre because she's never released another song. No, that that's what it's like. That, but, yeah, but that, that, yeah, that makes it more bizarre because in your head you go, okay, maybe the reason she did it is she genuinely was trying to launch a singing career and was like, okay, let's let's use this as the launch pad, and the song was actually successful. It yeah, did, yeah. was popular and did get high on the charts. So you would think that she would then go, right, I'll release an album. But that's never happened. So you go, like, what was the purpose? She'd never <laughs> released a song before or since. She has got a good voice. She can sing. So what the fuck was the point? What, how would, did that get bolted on? That they just went, oh, we need someone to sing this song. Kate, you around? Like, are they, like you know, <laughs> we'll pay you an extra fiver and give you a sausage roll. You up for it? Yeah. <laughs> okay. You know, it just it's really weird. I don't know why it happened, but I did. But, it did make remind me of that song. And I will probably look it up on Spotify and listen to it now. So one of the things that like uh, a Christmas Carol is synonymous with Liam is the phrase bar humbug like you know the text better than me is that a line from the from the original text or is that kind of oh god i'm trying to see this is i don't isn't it that he doesn't say bar humbug he only ever says humbug like as if bar humbug is a is a made-up thing it's like one of those classic misheard Kind of things like be, like beam me up, Scotty. has never happened. It's beam me up. And uh, with this, I swear he only ever actually says humbug 
not bar humbug. Does he say hu- Does he say humbug in? I'm not sure if he even says humbug in this adaptation, though. Does he? No, but he does say it in other adaptations, like the um, the Patrick Stewart one. Um, which we did for our first Christmas special on Spotlight. <laughs> so we're all doing the Christmas Carol, multiple Christmas Carol versions with, with tangentially linked actors um, for our podcast. And I know in that, which has a lot of very, very faithful adaptation, um, yeah, he just goes, humbug, uh, rather. I think bar humbug is bollocks, and it's just humbug. I think that's what it is. Also... Just want to talk about Bob Cratchit in this film. So yeah, Reese Bonds, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. He's a disgusting little toady in this movie, isn't he? <laughs> like, uh, literally, like he is such a fucking apologist for Scrooge. Like, there's the bit where the classic moment, which happens in all the adaptation, where Bob Cratchit stands up at the Christmas dinner after his family have gone all oh, Scrooge, what an old cunt. And he stands up and goes, oh no, to Mr. Scrooge, the founder of the feast. You know, all that kind of thing. And in this, it's before he realised, because somehow, because Scrooge actually throws the bucket of water in front of Bob Cratchit, um, who looks horrified, but he can't have seen what actually happened, because otherwise he'd know it was his son who got hit. So I don't know why he was so horrified, because he didn't actually see what happened. But he says, like, you know, to Scrooge. And then you literally, as he goes, like, to Mr. Scrooge, Tiny Tim's like, <laughs> in the background. <laughs> and then his mum goes, like, oh, don't you know, you fucking idiot? It was Mr. Scrooge who threw the cold war over, and now our son's going to die. So fuck Scrooge. You don't give a fuck. And then Bob Cratchit goes, oh? Oh, well, I'm sure he didn't mean it. <laughs> Like, you know, Mr. Scrooge is a misunderstood man. And he just like, and I think we should still drink Tim and still say he's the best of the world. And Ty Tim's like, dying in the fucking background. He's like, sorry, son, if you die, you die. Mr. Scrooge has been a fine employer to me. And the family, you know, he just, I was like, oh, Jesus. Grows the fucking backbone, Cratchit. And the guy who plays Fred. I don't know what choices he was making in his voice acting, but did he not sound monumentally dumb to you? Cousin mm-hmm. Fred, yeah. the guy who invites yeah. him to Christmas. He literally turns up and he's like, oh, hello, Uncle Scrooge. Oh, can you come to Christmas dinner with me? Uh, he's just like, get away from me. <laughs> really, really odd choice for that vocal performance in there. Well, you can tell that the, the actor who played Fred is Ian Jones, and you, you can tell he's a nobody because he doesn't have a picture on IMDb. So like, <laughs> I, I don't think he's done much else. Um, so before we move on to talking about Scrooge, I just wanted to bring up a point of um, I'm not sure if you know about this, but in 2009, Nicolas Cage turned on the Christmas lights in Bath. Do you know Do you know anything about this, Liam? Yes, I have heard this. Yeah. It's uh, it's fantastic. Like, so I, I'm currently looking at a Guardian article which has some fantastic photos of Nicolas Cage turning on the lights, and I will I will 100% share this on social media and 
put a link in the show notes to this of a picture. When did the lights get turned on? Well, I suppose it's quite early in the day the lights get turned on, isn't so it? Like beginning yeah, of so December. Yeah, so it's like the 26th of November. Oh, okay, yeah. So he wasn't actually randomly in Birmingham for Christmas, sort of. Uh... Yeah, but like, there's, there's crazy stuff. So, like, there was a uh, like a social club in, I think it was like Somerset. Uh, right. Like New Year's Eve, like 2018, it, it would have been. Nick Cage kind of went in there and bought everyone in the social club a drink. And like, he's kind of got this weird like thing of just like turning up in small town England, just being like, I've come to... I've come to take over this. I'm buying the local castle or something. And he's just like a very, a very bizarre gentleman in kind of like his, the way he like, I don't know, carries himself. And like what, what made me laugh so much about him turning the Christmas lights on in Bath is the other like kind of celebrity quote unquote there that night was Toby Anstess. So I think like a, like a, a, like a radio presenter. Yeah, I Toby Ansis rings a bell in terms of I've been a radio or maybe children's TV presenter for when I was young yeah. or something like that. I think like uh, yeah, I mean that is very bizarre, and uh, I don't know what Cage made. I'd love to see some video footage of him switching on the lights, see if he did a little speech or anything. Yeah, I, I like I couldn't imagine Cage doing a speech other than like like reading out something from like. Edgar Allan Poe or something Do you know I mean? <laughs> something very very dark is he an Edgar Allan Poe fan as well I know he's in a Poe adaptation recently no he's not no no it was, um, that was yeah. that was John Cusack who was in a Poe adaptation The Raven um, but like he is. He is. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, he was in H.P. Lovecraft. H.P. Lovecraft yeah, yeah. is the thing he was in, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Poe. Yeah, because Sylvester Stallone loves Edgar Allan Poe as well. Yeah, and, um, and, and so I was like, oh, if we could get Cage and Stallone together uh, to do, but after they after he missed out on being in one of the Expendables films. Like, you finally get Sly and Cage together for some Edgar Allan Poe uh, movie. That'd be great. Well, yeah, it could be like that I'm Not Here, that um, that Bob Dylan-like oh, uh, film, yeah, yeah. where they just kind of get these, like, Hollywood, like, fans of Edgar Allan Poe kind of, like, doing, like, the last days of... Oh, I don't know, yeah, doing like just doing different reading. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You could have Cusack, you could have Cage, you could have Stallone. And the, the, the fact that Stallone is a massive Edgar Allan Poe fan absolutely blows my fucking mind. Like, well, uh, St- Stallone is, is an absolute anomaly because you, know you know he's a painter, like a successful painter as well. <laughs> like, as in, he actually makes money of selling his paintings very, very comfortably and stuff like that. And, like, I, for years he was trying to make a biopic of Edgar Allan Poe, which is called Poe. And I think it was a bit of a passion project for him, but I think... I really hope one day he gets around to it, because I think that'd be really cool. Like, yeah, at that point where he finally accepts that he can't do the action anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and on that day when his knees had turned to dust... 
going like you know he'll he'll finally sit down and do the Poe biopic. But by that time, it'll probably be like he'll he'll out of age the role, and it'll be like I have to find somebody else to play him. It'll be like I don't know, like a Timothy Chalamet or something like that. I could just see. Oh like, God! I, I know, I know, I know. But like, or I don't know. I don't know who would make a good Edgar Allan Poe. I only said Timothy Chalamet. He's the only like black-haired actor I could think of at that moment. But like, yeah, 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 yeah Robert yeah. Pattinson. He, I don't know. The, yeah, he's the guy. Right he's now. the guy. He's yeah, 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 yeah. So Liam, let's move on to Richard Donner's 1988 adaptation of A Christmas Carol, Scrooged. Seven o'clock, Psycho sees Santa's workshop, and only Lee Majors can stop them. In the night, the reindeer die. Be here. You can't show that commercial. That thing looked like the the Manson family Christmas special. Think I'm way off base? Yes, you're you're a tad off base, sir. Frank Cross is more than the youngest network president in television history. Call security. Have them change his locks and toss him out of the building. Oh, he's fired? It's Christmas. Thank you. Call the county. Stop his bonus. Watch out. He's a thoughtful boss. Thanks, boys. Get the nurse. A generous brother. What did he give you last year? Uh, I don't remember. A shower curtain. Ma'am, I think you dropped something here. And a true humanitarian. I can't get the antlers glued onto this little guy. We've tried crazy glue. Have you tried staples? But his life is about to change. That was a good one. You are going to be visited by three ghosts tomorrow at noon. God, tomorrow's bad for me, Lou. As a matter of fact, the whole rest of the week is a washout. Anyone who thinks he hates Christmas is wrong. Ghosts he hates. Ah, I love that bit! <laughs> I'm the ghost of Christmas presents. <laughs> Bill Murray. <laughs> Karen Allen. It sounded like you'd seen a ghost. A ghost? John Forsythe. <laughs> Bobcat Goldthwait. Hey! You want to see me, or is this a shotgun in your pocket? <laughs> you know this one? Everybody knows this one. Let's go now. Yeah, does everybody know this one? <laughs> Carol Kane. Robert Mitchum. I really care. David Johansson. Oh, I'm having the weirdest day. See Bill Murray get Scrooged. Hey, back off, big man. That may work with the checks, but not with me. You had the absolute pleasure of being able to talk to Richard Donner. Is this something that you talk to him about, this 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 film? Yeah, it is. Um, so uh, I interviewed Richard Donner uh, in, in Christmas uh, 2017. Uh, in fact, it was actually uh, in the run-up to Christmas, I think, uh, it was made like last last day of November, going into the first day of December, because it was like in the early hours for us mm-hmm. um, that we interviewed him. Um, so naturally, I did ask him about Scrooge um, because 
uh, I knew that he was a huge fan of It's Wonderful Life, like, which is, like I say, my my favourite film. Um, so I kind of asked him, being that you know he was such a fan of that, if he wanted to try and kind of emulate it by creating something that would become a kind of Christmas classic that would be like screened every year and stuff. And, and you know, which Scrooge very much has become uh, is a film that's on every year and everything like that. Um, to which uh, he he was like, no, and you know, I will say that uh, Dick Donner is someone who's very matter of fact about mm-hmm. things. Like, you know, I don't think he, he is not someone you're going to be able to get to talk too much, uh, uh, kind of too loftily about the work he does. Kind of thing. Like, he is someone who's just like, you know, he comes in, he does 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 the job, everything like that, and he does it brilliantly well. I think he's a fantastic director, but he is very, very humble, um, about the whole process, and yeah, he, he talked. Uh, he talked about making this film. Um, he said he thought it was extremely well written, uh, and it gave him an opportunity uh, to do something that would be a lot of fun. Uh, and he loved the idea of working with Bill Murray. He loved the idea of working with Bill Murray, um, and he said he, he, when talking about working with Murray, he said Bill Murray's a classic. And you can't hold him down, is what he said, in referring to kind of Murray's improvisational style, um, which he said basically he would ensure that they got a couple of good takes of basically the script, what the film was actually meant to be, and then he'd do another take when he would let Murray run riot kind of thing, you know, do his own thing. And, you know, it's funny, it's an interesting one, because... um, Bill Murray has gone on record. Uh, I don't know how he feels about it now. Maybe as time has passed, uh, he's become more kind of chilled out about it. But certainly when the film came out, um, he was quite vocal about not being happy with it, um, about kind of, you know, saying that uh, Dick Donner had kind of forced him to be bigger um, than he would like to be with his performance and everything like that. Um... And that he was kind of, you know, uh, restrained, if anything, by the production, which to me is absolutely insane, because when I watch this film, I go, this feels like Bill Murray unleashed. Like, it feels like the most Murray film. Like, you know, where he is just absolutely... He is at that point of the height of his stardom, because before this, a lot of a lot of the films he did were mostly like ensemble-based movies, mm-hmm. like Ghostbusters, Stripes, stuff like that. And this was a film where it was like he was really headlining it, um, and you know he is it's, it's wall to wall Murray, and he really does feel like he is just all over it. And by the time it gets to the end, just you just feel like you're at a party at Bill Murray's house, like you know, or something like that. Um, so you know, I find that kind of uh, I think that might just be him just being kind of difficult or something because that's not how it comes across watching the film, certainly. So, yeah, this is a really interesting stage in, like, kind of Murray's career and that, like, he's taken this four-year hiatus, he's back, that kind of, like, I don't know, out, out, out from Paris, out of the wilderness, and he's like, this is, what, a year before he comes back to do... Ghostbusters 2, which again, like... Yeah, it's, the, it's, it's 1988, so it's the year before Ghostbusters 2. 
which again, like, there's a like a lot of stories of Bill Murray being very difficult to wrangle. I mean, I think he was very dissatisfied with Ghostbusters. I mean, it's taken until now to convince him. Obviously, he did put in a cameo appearance in uh, the 2016 female reboot of Ghostbusters, but that was not playing Peter Venkman. That was playing like a random kind of mm-hmm. character, kind of thing, like you know. Whereas now, of course, he is returning as Peter Venkman in uh, Ghostbusters Afterlife. That's been confirmed. Uh, when it, when we will see that film, I don't <laughs> know uh, because of the the coronavirus, which is such a shame because I was so so excited for that movie. Um, so I, I will hold my hands up here, and like when you said like let's talk about Scrooge, I was like, thank you, Liam, because like Bill Murray is one of like my favorite actors of all time. He's like somebody I like kind of looked to, and it's like. I don't know if you like look to actors and be like, if I could, it, like, if in the real world, like, I could be somebody, it's like I could see myself as like Bill Murray's characters. Do you know what I mean? Because they like he kind of has this way of being relatable and the kind of like things around him, like the stories of him turning up to parties, doing the washing up and stuff yeah. like that. He's like yeah. he seems like such an approachable guy, and it's like I don't know, like. My favourite Wes Anderson's film is The Life Aquatic with Steve Sissou and it's like because Bill Murray is that linchpin and it's like I, I once went on a plane to New York and watched Ghostbusters at least three times because that film is so comforting to me. And that's probably yeah, like... Yeah, the same with me. Ghostbusters is, is the film. It's, it's not my favourite film, although it's definitely in my top five. It's definitely in my top five films of all time. And it is the film I have seen most mm-hmm. in my life. Um, yeah, I mean, literally dozens of times. Like, and I am not even someone who watches films multiple times loads. Like, you know, in terms of, I, I, I genuinely am not. But Ghostbusters is one I can watch anytime, anywhere, kind of thing. Like, you know, I've seen it, cinema screenings of it as well. Like, uh, it was funny, actually, it was on my um, my second day of my film production degree uh, back in Bournemouth, uh, which David Trumbull, who's also been a guest on the show, was on that degree with me um, at the same time. And uh, literally on the second day, uh, there was, it was, it was a class of 80 uh, students, and we were, they were kind of, the lecturers were talking about you know arranging events and stuff like that we could all get to know each other and i just piped up like right well ghostbusters is on at the odeon tomorrow night like you know <laughs> uh, they're showing it like screening of it like who wants to go basically meet me in the spoons down the road and go like and literally just announce this thing and literally like 45 people so he fucking turned up like I don't know and that's the power of Ghostbusters man the power of Murray like but that's also the power of Liam Dempsey <laughs> for over a hundred episodes here on Caged In I've got to know Nicolas Cage now it's time to get to know his family next year I will be shaking every branch of the Coppola family tree to really weed out who are the prized apples and who are the rotten ones. In part, trying to understand Nicolas Cage that little bit 
better by understanding the brood in which he came from. Not only will I be looking at the filmographies of the core Coppola family, yes, that is right, Francis Ford Coppola, Sophia Coppola, Roman Coppola, Christopher Coppola, Jason Schwartzman, Robert Schwartzman, Talia Shire. I will also be looking at the wider family and those who at some point were married into this cinematic dynasty. So please let me make you an offer that you can't refuse as I embark on this journey to the heart of darkness and try not to get lost in translation. So I hope you will join me as I try and connect the dots and figure out are the Coppolas the greatest film family of all time? Encaged in presents Coppola Connections. So, um, yeah, this uh, was written by Mitch Glazer, who also co-wrote A Very Murray Christmas. Uh, have you seen A Very Murray Christmas? I have, yeah, the Netflix uh, Sophia Coppola. The one where he's fucking singing all the way through. Yeah, it's directed by Sophia Coppola. Yeah, so another another Nicolas Cage connection right there. He's his very own cousin. Of course, yeah. So I suppose you could potentially do a very Murray Christmas for your Coppola connections type thing, couldn't you? Essentially, well, yeah, yeah. Well, it's that and that and Claus really duking it out for next year's Christmas special. Do you know what I mean? It's, oh, it's is that Jason Schwartzman in Claus, is he? Yeah, 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 yeah. He's the lead in that, so it's like a real like duking it out. But like, they'll definitely both get covered over the next. I don't know, three years I'll be covering Coppola films. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, Very Merry Christmas could be a future uh, Christmas special. I mean, I, I've got to be honest, at, at some point I might give it another go, uh, but I tried to watch it a couple of years ago and was just like, what the fuck is this? I, I don't think anyone expected there to be as much Bill Murray singing as there was in that kind of film at all and yeah very very odd but also um co-written by michael o'donoghue uh who was one of the head writers for saturday night live in the 80s and he like murray was not happy with how this film came out he called it an unaltered unmitigated shit fuck so he, he he is not satisfied with the way his film came together and i I mean, it's, it's, it's odd, because watching it, I'm like, I think it's a really good film. It's a really, really good movie. I don't quite get why they'd be so dissatisfied with it. Well, that's the thing for me, is sometimes when I hear about comedies, and they say, like, we had a blast making it, and then you see the film on screen, you're like, well, it's not any good. Do you know what I mean? It's like, you had too much fun making this, that, like, you didn't you didn't actually, like... You didn't have somebody behind the camera going, no, do it again, do this, do that. And, like, I think Rich Donner gets the best out of, like, Bill Murray in, like... As you said earlier, this is very much the Bill Murray show. And there's loads of, like, asides and, like, very caustic jokes. Like, there's a bit when he says to a, um, a guy who's on fire, you remind me of Richard Pryor? And it's like... Oh, yes, it was a very off-colour joke. Yeah. And, like, he even makes, like, references to, like, films he's been in as well. 
think there's a moment like right at the end where he makes a uh, little shop of horrors. Little shop joke. of horrors. Yeah, and it's like some of it very much feels like Bill Murray just going out there. And I would argue that the last like quarter, like I don't know quarter, but the last like fifth of the film where it's Bill Murray like on camera at the Scrooge like live taping. It's when he realises he's alive. It, from then on, it's the Murray show. When he's in the elevator, he thinks he's dead. And then he's like, I'm alive! Like, and after that, he is just racing around, like basically doing a one-man show, pretty much, for the rest of the film. But all that stuff of him, like, to the camera and stuff like that, very much feels like Bill Murray riffing. Like, even to the point where uh, it's like... Big time. Where it, like... Some of, like it feels like the take goes on like some of it goes on a bit too long and it's a bit like yeah. it's like he kind of turned around to Richard Donner like I don't know if I don't know at what point on the kind of schedule this was filmed I'd imagine towards the end and he's like Richard you're getting fucking one take of this like this is what you're fucking getting like and like I don't know like Bill Murray's a weird one because he, he like from doing, if you if you read up about it, it can be quite a prickly character. I know there's like, oh yeah, with um, Harold Ramis, like after uh, Groundhog Day, there was like a massive falling out. Like a lot of people, he's like, he's famously. Some people find it charming. It's like this whole like kind of myth of Bill Murray that he do- he doesn't have like. A mobile phone he only has this like oh, yeah. mythical answer phone that like you can kind of drop in and leave a message like about a role and stuff like that and it's like some of it borders on a bit of being a bit of a prick and there's like if you look at some of the legal cases brought about him from like some of his ex-wives as well it's like oh He's a massive fucking prick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, Bill Murray is, you know, like many characters in Hollywood, he is a potentially problematic figure. Um, however, um, I think he is a unique performer. Um, you oh. know, I don't really think there's anyone like Bill Murray. No. Uh, the, you know, he is one of the few actors you can go if you want if you need Bill Murray for a film for a performance you're not going to get anyone else who's a Bill Murray type it's just Bill Murray and that's it well yeah there's that thing as well like in this there seems like a lot of like in jokes and stuff like that and it 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 kind of like really makes me think about like who is this aimed for because there's like there's a reference really early on where he opens a drawer and there's a mirror in it and like especially knowing like the kind of like SNL scene from that time it's like is this a cocaine gag like is this like he's got this like he's this studio like TV executive he opens this drawer and it's like supposed to be like almost like him talking to the camera but he opens this drawer and looks into a mirror and it's like that feels like a cocaine gag and then we get like um Karen Allen's character at one point is like smoking in the bath with like a roach clip which is like synonymous with smoking joints and it's like I I think this film like suffers a bit of like is this a 
I don't know. Is this a family film or is this very much like an adult-centric film? I mean, it's a weird one because I think it is a PG, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I think it is a PG. And, I mean, number one, I don't think it should be a PG. <laughs> I, think it's, uh, I think it's, like, a, a t- easy... I don't know how this hasn't been upgraded to a 12 because it, it, there are parts of this that are genuinely really horrible and scary and stuff like that. I mean, I saw this, I don't know when you first saw this. I would have been, I would have been quite young. Yeah, I would have been yeah, below yeah, the age yeah, of 10. Yeah. The, the moment where the the Marley-esque character comes to visit him um, and kind of holds him out of the window and gradually his arm, his kind of decayed arm, snaps off is absolutely horrific. I mean, that is something straight out of a horror movie. It's really grotesque and horrible. I don't know how that gets a PG. And then later on, obviously, you've got the ghost of Christmas Future, uh, who again is... That that effect of his gigantic arm creeping out of the TV is still really got impact and really scary because it's a it's a huge that, that giant practical effect that they're doing with it is is still it feels like it's there and it is still scary well one of the notes i have about this film is like it's great use of practical effects and it's a great use of like with each like ghost there's like a great like gimmick if, if, if you will, like, you kind of have the, like, the first ghost... So the Ghost of Christmas Past has this gimmick of, like, being a ca- uh, taxi cab driver. And it's, like, the fare meter comes up of, like, what year they're going through. And then we have this, like, the... Fantastically played by Carol Kane, the Ghost of Christmas Present, who, like, kind of beats Bill Murray to fucking shit. And like, but like the kind of transitions from like time period, like, like like scene, yeah, yeah, transitions to scenes. It's like her kind of like beating him about, and like him falling down and stuff like that. And it's like that's great. And then like that kind of even the elevator motif, even though like now it would seem quite like hackneyed and played out, is a really great like like for the time like. A, a visual representation of being like we're going to this floor to kind of show you this different like period in the future or whatever. Mm, and, mm, like, mm. and there's even like for a film that came out in 1988 there's a fucking Donald Trump like like Barb in this film I'm not sure if you picked up on it at all oh I think maybe, maybe when's, when's that so when he's in the like ghost of Christmas presents like uh, company. There's a moment where he's shown one of like um, Claire's uh, people she like looks after in the um, oh, homeless shelter kitchen, doesn't she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there's a guy and he's like frozen to death, and Bill Murray's like kind of like dropped into this scene, and he says like, "Whoa, this is nice. Where are we? Trump Tower?" And it's like clearly. <laughs> A horrible, like frosted, like I don't know, lower than basement level, like area, and yeah, yeah like, yeah, yeah. and it feels interesting as well that this film is made in the eighties, and obviously the like 
what they're poking fun at is the excess of the 80s which like America is famously not known for having a sense of humour when it comes to stuff that is like very current do you know what I mean like especially <clears throat> especially in the mainstream like kind of I don't know you'll get comedians making jokes about it but like in the mainstream and for stuff to thrive they don't tend to go like yeah that that's great it, it tends to be like on reflection they'll be like Oh, wasn't the last? Wasn't wasn't that time really fucking bad? But like with this, it's like they're very much poking fun at the excess of the eighties, and I think that the character of Frank very much encapsulates that excess. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very eighties. It kind of feels it's funny. It's the year after both Wall Street and RoboCop. Uh, both of which, like, you know, you feel that this film kind of has, you know, e- emulates slightly, I mean, especially Robocop with the kind of media satire, because a lot of the kind of shows that uh, IBC are producing feel like a sort of uh, OCP type uh, kind of media kind of production. Like, immediately that uh, insane. Um, uh, Santa film at the beginning with uh, the six million dollar man appearing in it uh, from yeah. that kind of blowing people away like terrorist attacking Santa and stuff it it all feels yeah very kind of that Verhoeven-esque kind of satire in it um, it maybe was, feels quite far removed from a lot of Dick Donner's other work uh, but you know he is a director who you know there, there's a craftsmanship uh, to his to his films, but a lot. Of, but he is very eclectic uh, with the kind of films he made all through his career. So, like one of the things that this film does that is different to the traditional adaptation of this is like one. It is in a world that like the Scrooge story exists, and like uh, yes. It introduces new characters and kind of like new new character arcs and stuff like that. What did you make of the um, the kind of Bob Cratchit, as it were, the the secretary's role? Is it Grace? Like her, uh, her... who's played by Alfred Woodard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what did you think of like kind of her portrayal and her storyline throughout this film? I mean, I think. You know, to be honest, uh, her her role is is reasonably, but feels reasonably slim. It, mm-hmm. it, she doesn't actually feel like um, she has as large a part to play as Bob Cratchit does in the original Christmas Carol. But sometimes, when you've got a great actor um, like Alfred Woodard, who is a, a, a brilliant a brilliant actor. Um, you know that makes up a lot, and she can bring a lot of humanity um, to that part quite easily. And she, there is also a Star Trek connection uh, with her because she is the kind of female lead in Star Trek: First Contact, my favourite Star Trek film. So there you go. Amazing. And one of the things that they kind of add to this adaptation is the like involvement of Gold Cat. Uh, uh, Bobcat Goldthwait. Bobcat Goldthwait, yeah. Which, like, that that character arc is, like, possibly one of my favourite things about this film. Like, what do, you, what do you make of his kind of character arc and his performance in this film? 
Well, what I like is at the beginning of the film, he's actually playing against types. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's actually very obviously Bobcat Goldthwait, uh, probably most famous for playing Zed in the Police Academy films, uh, who's a character who's originally the antagonist of Police Academy 2, their first assignment, and then goes on to become a cop in Police Academy 3 back in training, almost to kind of exemplify the fact that they really will take fucking anyone. But apparently he's reformed. Of course, Bob Catgirl is very famous for his kind of vocal style. He's like, yeah, like He's just really uh, strung out all the time and very high how he plays him. But at the beginning of this, he's kind of, he's playing a kind of executive, sort of buttoned up. Uh, glasses almost feels more uh, Rick Moranis like at mm-hmm. the beginning of the film, and then gradually as it goes through, he kind of devolves into the Bobcat that we all know and love. Like by the end of the uh, film, where he's kind of going crazy and kind of becoming um, like uh, Elmer Fudd, he's kind of uh, imitating, isn't he, at the end? Well, yeah, here's a rendition of Santa Claus is Coming to Town. It's possibly one of the funniest, like, one of the funniest things in this film. Is like, it's like, just his, like, delivery of it. And I don't think I could do it justice, where he's like, oh, you better watch out. And he's kind of got this, like, register where he would kind of, like, jump up all of a sudden in the way he speaks. And it's like, yeah, his character is great. And it's just kind of like, like you said about the kind of previous adaptation, is like really portraying the the, the the protagonist antagonist as a real shit. It's like we get to see through this guy that like his life in the space of a day has gone. And I think he says it as well. It's like I lost my job, I lost my wife, and the rest of the day I've just been like ridiculously drunk so I don't really remember the rest of it and it's like that's kind of like the impact the Scrooge character has on people's lives and it's like I don't know like that's a welcome like addition to this kind of adaptation is the is the involvement of Bobcat Goldthwait and I think like even as much as it could be the fact that it's an element of like Bobcat's really big at the moment. Let's get him involved. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, yeah. yeah. If they were making an adaptation of Christmas Carol today, they might hire Bill Murray. They definitely wouldn't hire Bobcat Goldfight. Yes. Uh, but, of course, he has gone on to become a successful director, of course, so he's he's been fine. Well, like, so this film is littered with kind of, like, Big-named people, or kind of like at least people who are recognisable in some way or another, whether it is obviously um, Robert uh, Mitchum. Robert Mitchum. Who else? Like, so who else have we got in this? So we've got John Glover. We have Carol Kane, as I said, as the the ghost of Christmas present, who apparently really beat Bill Murray up during filming. Yeah, so she ripped. She actually cut his lip, and then they yeah, had to take yeah, like yeah. A, f- a few days off. Um, was, she said she was quoted as saying, "Like, oh, that film was really fun for me to make. I don't think it was fun for Bill because he was the victim." 
Well, there's a lot of people in this as well that, like, even if you don't know their names, would be recognisable. So, like, just before recording this, I saw a post on a, like, Seinfeld page I follow on Instagram who kind of made comparisons between, like, actors who have, like, featured in Seinfeld who are also in Scrooged. And it's, like, up, upwards of, like, six to seven different actors who have, like, been in both. And it's, like, that was, like, the kind of, like, hot spot, the, the late 80s, because the, like, Seinfeld, like, launched in 1989, of being, mm. like, the kind of, like, those people would go on to be in that. And um, with, like, yeah, with casting as well, we have, like, three other... Murray brothers in this film. Oh right. So we have um so yeah, so we have uh is it Brian Doyle Murray who plays his dad. We have his own brother who plays his brother in this film. And then Oh because have... they have a is it is it is his brother, isn't it? Because he's basically playing the Fred role, isn't he? Yeah, so we have yeah, so so in in total we have John Murray, Joel Murray, and Brian Doyle Murray, like in this film, like and I think it's one of the brothers plays. Yeah, it's John Murray who plays like one of the guests at Fred's like party. So if you rewatch that scene, you'll realise right, that right, 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 that two of the people there look like they're brothers because they are. His dad's fucking hilarious in this film. That's one of the funniest scenes in the movie when he's flashback to his horrible Christmas where he's saying to his dad, like, you know, uh, he slams down, like, his Christmas present and he just lands before. He's like, oh, is it choo-choo train? He's like, it's four pounds of veal. (laughs) And he's covered in blood as well. Yeah, he's hilarious in that. So, like, David Johannesson as well as the Ghost of Christmas Past. He's absolutely perfect in that role. Like, he yeah, is... Yeah, he's really good, yeah. He, he is fan... And, like, he just plays this kind of, like, maniacal madman who's taking him through, like, these, like, past events and stuff like that. And it's just, like... While also being an earthy New York taxi driver, kind of thing. like yeah, 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 he's very, very good. But um, yeah, we also have John Glover in the film as well, who's the guy who ends up kind of trapped at the end, like tied up by that woman and being kind of seduced. Who's who's basically like he he sort of you get the impression that he's Murray's main business rival, maybe in the in the film. And he, funnily enough, is in Batman and Robin which is what we're covering for our Christmas special this year uh, on Spotlight. He plays Jason Woodrue, uh, who's the creator of Bane and the guy who basically kills Pamela Risley so she transforms into Poison Ivy. Uh, so he's a great he's a great actor. He's really good. Also played uh, Lex Luthor's dad in Smallville for years as well. Yeah, it's perfect. Like, you mentioned about the woman who kind of, like, traps him and tries to kiss him at the end. There's an amazing, like, kind of running gag throughout this film of the censor 
being like kind of beaten the shit out of in like a, a, a numerous different ways. Whether it's that like amazing scene where uh, Frank is like saying like, "No, that woman, that that woman's nipples aren't on display." And then we've got these like two pervy camera operators or kind of like I don't know key grips on stage going like. No, we definitely can't see the nipples. And it's like this amazing exchange where it's like, see, those guys were really looking. Of course her nipples aren't on display. And then she gets hit She gets hit by a lamppost. She kind of, anything that can come at her comes at her. Yeah, I mean, so there's obviously real hatred at the censors here, which seems slightly unfair as they obviously were lenient on this film to give it a fucking PG. Yeah, 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 yeah. Even after relentless censor like brutality in the film. So, um, what do you think? Like, one of the things I want to speak about this film is, what do you think of uh, Richard Donner's view, or the, the writer's view of the future and the kind of the way that the future is depicted in this film? Uh, I mean, you know, it's one of those things, isn't it, where <laughs> it's always with any film for this time. Um, you know, the the future is always going to be depicted in a rather bizarre way. I mean, especially with this year, because no one could predict it really. Well, well, you know, I say that obviously there were people who did predict uh, that we <laughs> would be kind of fucked over by a pandemic at some point. But most films dealing that are like futuristic, where they're set in the near future and such, like you know, don't tend. Writing now, usually, it's quite funny looking back on any film that tried to predict the future. One of the craziest ones is Demolition Man, of course, where that came out in 1993, and the first bit is set in 1996. But only three years after the film is it, and already like LA is some kind of fucking hellscape. Also, <laughs> like you know, just like criminals everywhere. And then when it flashes forward into the future, I think the future in Demolition Man, where it's like all crime has been erased and you know there hasn't been a murder in twenty years and all that. I think that's only twenty thirty nine or something. Like in terms of like yeah, it's it's very optimistic view. <laughs> of the future uh, potentially us getting there like it's it, it always seemed mad to me that they don't like every futuristic film you don't literally set it like you know 5,000 years in the future or something like that to go like yeah we're never going to get there so we could just say whatever we want now we don't have to worry about it getting caught up like Blade Runner 2049 see just like shooting itself in the foot like immediately you yeah, know what I mean it's like people watching that film are gonna be alive to see see that yes. future. Yeah, so yeah. it's like, what are you what are you fucking <laughs> doing? Um, so before I let you go, Liam, I, I just want to ask you a couple a couple of extra questions. Is um, in the spirit of a Christmas Carol, I want to ask you what is your favourite film of Nicolas Cage Christmas Past? So what is your favourite film from the eighties, Nicolas Cage output? Favourite Cage film from the 80s, I think, is almost definitely, and I'm just going to check on my own Cage ranking uh, that I have. Yes, it is Raising Arizona is my favourite 80s Cage movie that I have seen. Um, 
you know, as uh, Cohen brothers, and yeah, I mean that is 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 brilliant. Um, it's their second or third film, I think, and you know, it's it is really really fantastic and kind of where they laid down probably their real DNA as kind of filmmakers. And uh, Cage is Cage is really really good in it as well. He's really funny, and uh, yeah, it's a great movie. Yeah, both him and Holly Hunter kind of like play off each other, and it's like something I've talked about a lot on this podcast is the fact that like Cage is like super young in that film. He's like at, like at least twenty two, twenty three years old, and he's kind of a, he seems quite like confident in what he's doing, and like seems to be delivering a performance where it's like this is intentional, and he knows what he's doing, whether it's like channeling the Tex Avery um, cartoon aesthetic and like performance that he's doing and stuff like that he, he, he seems like an accomplished actor at such a such a young age i know he had kind of an early start in the kind of profession mm. like, he's, well he's, yeah because he's making proper acting choices whether you think they're right or not as early as something like peggy sue is getting married yeah. where yeah i mean that's whatever you think about it his voice in that film is that's a choice mm-hmm. yeah yeah and like everything in Raising Arizona is 100% a choice. So let's talk about Cage of Christmas Present, as it were. So let's talk about, like, this is kind of a broad scope, but let's go with the last 10 years. So 2010 to 2020. I know that that is literally half of Cage's output because 2009... He got broke, so he had to he had to up his workload. But what is your favourite film of those last ten years? I mean, it it it'd probably be a tie, a superhero tie between Kick Ass and uh, Spider Man into the Spider Verse. Uh, quite hard to pick between those two, I think, because um, they're both really great uh, superhero movies. That both of them, quite I would say did different things to the superhero movie, you know, than, than before. And obviously he's a supporting role in both of those movies, but he's he's excellent um, in both of them. And, you know, considering he's he's playing, he plays Batman, obviously, in Kick-Ass, or, you know, officially he's playing Big Daddy, uh, but he's very much channeling uh, Adam West. Batman in that movie and in Into the Spider-Verse he plays Spider-Man Noir uh, which is a noir version of Spider-Man from a parallel universe so he's not only getting to play Spider-Man uh, but also channeling kind of the noir uh, kind of icons like Humphrey Bogart and Robert Mitchum and stuff like that so you know that's uh, both those movies I think yeah for me so weirdly Cage working in the superhero world in the last decade I think he's really found a good home there after the slight missteps of the Ghost Rider films. Now he's 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 doing very he's doing very well within that sphere. So you know maybe we'll see Cage turn up in the MCU at some point. Even Teen Titans go to the movies. That is is very very fun. Yeah, and it's that thing like I, I hope like obviously like the next stage of the MCU is they are pretty much ripping off. Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Do you know what I mean? They're 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 following. Well, yeah, it down sounds the, like that yeah. is what's going to happen. Yeah, they're they're following the the kind of uh, multiverse madness approach to it all, and it's like 
even now, like it's like Cage could actually play a live action Spider Man noir, and it would be great. Do you know what I mean? Because it's like, like most of that film is CGI anyway, and it was like, and it's somebody in a suit. So it's like, but like the vocal performance could still be Nicolas Cage, and he he kind of encapsulates that character. And as it was mentioned on the episode of David Trumbull, like he is in that film for five and a half minutes but leaves such a mark on that film and his performance like really kind of encapsulates that character and like leaves a mark on you as a as an audience member that it's like yeah Cage Cage yeah he's he's got one of the most memorable moments his sign off you know is is incredibly kind of like genuinely like tear jerking like moving Mm -hmm like moment where it's just such a and it's such a kind of random line in many ways where in terms of like seems to seemingly come out of nowhere but also by that point he he completely sells it and makes it it's like yeah yeah of course of course because they're all essentially the same person just different versions of and of course there's a bond uh, between them and yeah it's, it's really really great yeah, and it very much plays into that kind of like the, the paternal like want that that film has, and like kind of Cage plays that paternal figure to Penny Parker in that film, and it's like when he says that reluctant "I uh, love you," it's yeah, it really does pack an emotional punch. But before we get too sad, it's Christmas Day. There's going to be enough heartbreak and sadness. Uh, let's let's look to the future. So 2021 looks like it could be a very prosperous year for Nicolas Cage. What is the like future project you are most looking forward to Cage uh, appearing in? So does this have to be a project he's actually doing and actually making? Um, if it is, then the things that I'm most interested in from Cage are the one where... He's playing himself. Um, that's coming. The unbearable weight of massive talent is what it's called, and it has Sharon Horgan in it as well, who's brilliantly talented. Uh, and that, so I mean, you know, if there's any actor who could play themselves hilariously, it'd be Cage. You know, I think that could be very, very funny and interesting. Uh, I am intrigued to see him play uh, Joe Exotic, mm-hmm. um, the Tiger King. I, I wasn't, I didn't watch that documentary series. I had literally zero interest. And so I would be going in fresh <laughs> into the Tiger King verse with Guided by Cage when that happens. So, yeah. And I also, first time that Cage has done TV properly, yeah. I believe. Um, so yeah, I, I yeah, those are the two projects I think that are actually been announced that kind of excite me. I would say. Well, I think the the um, unbearable weight of massive talent really kind of stands out to me. It's like it's not just like the Sharon Horgan connection. It's like Pedro Pascal, who has recently come out and said that Cage was a major influence for his character in uh, Wonder Woman nineteen eighty four. He said, like, oh, okay. like, and like, he's kind of, I think, like, very recently has kind of delved into which specific Cage performances uh, influenced his character. It's a film I haven't seen myself at the moment because uh, 
I'm staying inside instead of going to the cinema. But it's like, um, I can kind of imagine the kind of like characters he's drawing upon. Maybe it is a, a Peter Lowe from Vampire's Kiss. Maybe it is a cast of Troy if he's playing that like villainous character. But like other other cast members that have been cast for that, it's like Neil Patrick Harris, and it's like every person who kind of like gets announced that is cast for that, it's like well that's that that really piques my interest and it's like that that's one i'm very much looking forward to like i don't know it could be like like many cage films it could be 50 50 but i think this one is leaning much more to the kind of like positive than the negative with the kind of i don't know the people <laughs> the actors i trust who have mm. kind of signed up? Actors you trust more than Cage at this point. Well, well, yeah, I, I've kind of burnt enough times, Liam, as you know, and like yes. I don't know, I, but at the same time, I kind of have like um, something I've I've kind of uh, coined as like Cage Home Syndrome, where it's like there's a kind of running gag throughout this podcast where like and it's kind of it very much weighs heavy on my my psyche a lot of the time and my heart is <laughs> when there is a film that I enjoy and I'm like this isn't critically acclaimed or like I know that most people don't like this film the thing that like jumps out to me and I need to address this on the podcast is I'm like Liam Dempsey's going to give me shit about liking this fucking film. To be fair, I've only given you shit about Stolen because I watch it on your recommendation and it was fucking terrible. So, like, I mean, like, literally, not, not, but I will say, not as bad as Bangkok Dangerous still. And Christmas Carol the movie is not as bad as Bangkok Dangerous. So, you know, it's just, uh, but, oh, God, fucking hell. Oh, that film, like, uh, who is it who plays the fucking bad guy in it? In uh, Stolen? Josh Lucas. He's fucking terrible in it. He's so <laughs> bad. One of the most unconvincing villains I've ever fucking seen, like, in anything, ever. Like, and... Cage uh, <laughs> is so weird. He, I mean, that is t- t- totally a paycheck movie. There's a bit when, when Josh Lucas first phones him up, I think to say, like, I've kidnapped your daughter, <laughs> whatever. When he first phones him, Cage is so nonchalant. He, like, uh, us me, he's like, oh, who's this, your worst nightmare? And Cage's like, oh, is that you? How you doing, man? <laughs> like, just, we should go for a couple of drinks. It'd be great. He's like, I've kidnapped your daughter. Ha, huh, nice gag, buddy. Anyway, like, he doesn't pick up on it for ages. <laughs> he's actually serious. And kidnapped his daughter. Like, oh, fucking hell. Yeah, listeners, don't watch Stolen. Don't listen to Petros's mad Stockholm Syndrome ramblings. Well, the thing is, <laughs> since watching Stolen, I've seen that Josh Lucas is in a film that is, like, based on The Secret, the kind of, like, oh, God. cult. cult yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, um, yeah, for, for listeners at home, it's, like, it's kind of, like, I don't know, cult-esque belief that, like, if you want something, you'll get it just by wanting it, essentially. And I heard an interview with him where he's like, yeah, I kind of believe in it. And I'm like, 
oh, maybe I put my maybe I put my fucking bet on the wrong horse here. Like, <laughs> well, also, I go like, if you wish to star in Stolen, I mean that's not going well, to be honest. And like, yeah, if he if he said like, you know, I wish to star in like the best revenge thriller there's ever been, and they got given Stolen, then you know I would say it hasn't worked for him, to be honest. In my defence, just just the last word on Stolen. I think it is a case of like, at that time on the podcast, like I had been dealt a really rough hand from Nicolas Cage. So by the time that that film came about I was like, this is sweet relief as as opposed to the films I'd been watching at that time. It's like, at least it's not as bad as Tokarev or at least it's not as bad as Trespass or like there's the like, uh, like at least not as bad as Justice. Like there's like, like a whole host of these one-word titles, uh, straight to DVD films that Nick Cage has done. That it's like at least it's not as bad as that. And like I think that's the the good like will that it was directed by Simon West. And I was like, oh, he's he, he, he's a home country boy. Maybe he'll pull it out of the bag. It's a nice reunion. It's, it's Cage and West back together after all these years. Well, look, Simon, the only thing that got stolen, if you're listening, was my fucking time, all right, <laughs> watching your shit movie. So, there we go. Saying that, I do like Connor. So, you know, all is forgiven. Perfectly. Well, like, if people want to catch up, like, with you and what you're doing with Spotlight, where can they do that? Uh, you can find us at Spotlight Pod on Instagram, uh, Facebook and Twitter and all good podcast places. Um, like I said earlier, we did interview Richard Donner, director of Scrooge. Um, so if you want to hear more of that interview uh, about his career, you can go back and find that on our feed. It was released in December 2017. Uh, so if you kind of clock back over, you'll find the interview with uh, Richard Donner. And yeah, he's amazing uh, raconteur and got loads of uh, great great stories so that's definitely worth checking out if you've got any kind of interest in his career and like as somebody who's listened to that episode it is like it is fantastic and it's like one of those things it's like I can imagine as like a fellow podcaster listening to like you guys kind of talking to someone it's like I could just imagine where it's like I can't I can't imagine the fact, like, do you know what I mean? It's like, I can't believe the fact we're talking to fucking Richard Donner right now. It's like that thing of like, um, yeah. How have we like snuck past the guards on this one? And it's like, it's just an amazing interview as well. And you guys kind of like don't let that element of like being, yeah, like there, there must be an element of like being starstruck, but you guys play it off pretty cool and like, yeah, I mean, we, we were shitting it, mate. We were shit, but, <laughs> but literally, it's funny. I actually listened. I actually listened to a bit of it today, just because I wanted to remind myself <laughs> what he'd said about Scrooge during the interview. Um, so I actually went back, and I haven't listened to that interview since it went out, basically. And to hear it again, I was actually really kind of like, oh, you know what? Like, right, we sound pretty comfortable. We sound okay. Well, which is mad because I remember us, like, you know, practically shaking before we were about to go on, like, you know, Skype with, with Donna. 
um, in his kind of office. And yeah, but actually listening back to it, I'm like, yeah, we all sound pretty actually together and professional with Donna. So yeah, it was a yeah fantastic, really in-depth interview. We talked for about like an hour, like hour and a half, or just under an hour and a half kind of thing. Let's like, so yeah, there's a lot lot to dig into there. Well, Liam, thank you very much for coming to join me for this special Cagemus uh, event. And uh, yeah, raging with Cage with me. It's been an absolute pleasure, mate. Have a very merry Cagemus to you and all your listeners. There you go, that's your lot. You better get out of here before I throw a bucket of ice-cold water over you, just like that bastard Scrooge did. A very merry Cagemus to you all. Thank you so much for listening, and do tune in next Wednesday when I will be talking to comedian Chris Martin about the 2019 film A Score to settle but apart from that guys i genuinely hope you all have a fantastic christmas and thank you for spending some of your christmas break listening to this very podcast that means the absolute world to me Uh, i just wanted to give back a little christmas treat to you all i'm not sure if it's much but it's something at least especially in this very very crazy year that we've had if you'd like to get in touch with caged in over the festive period if you're feeling lonely or just want to have a chat or anything like that do do please get in touch it's um i'm genuinely my virtual door is always open to you guys 24 7 let me know i will i will always do my best to get in touch with everyone and you can do that on facebook twitter and instagram and this sounds like a plug just for the socials it's not genuinely i love i love i love i love chatting to the listeners i love talking about films and nicholas cage especially uh so yeah it's just at caged in pod or drop me an email if you if you are feeling i don't know a little bit um it's been a tough year if, if you if you need someone to chat to or anything like that or just kind of just hang out with and get get your mind off of everything that's going on uh, drop me an email it's caged in pod at gmail.com we can always uh, jump on a zoom or something like that we can we, we can hang out online if you would like to give the podcast a little christmas treat this year a, a present do feel free to head on over to apple podcasts or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now and rate it five stars with a glowing review that would be fantastic i'd appreciate it so much and it would um i don't know help help other people hear about the podcast that's that's always fun isn't it or you can give me some money that's also great uh patreon patreon.com forward slash caged in pod or buy a superman caged in print designed by the fantastic tim hornsby which is caged in podcast dot limited run.com and they're great they're like i i I, i'm gonna say that but like i didn't design them tim did and tim's an absolute fucking legend so again guys a very merry cagemus to you all happy christmas 
and a very happy new year to you. As always, I've been Petrus Patsilovus. I've been caged in. Ho, 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 ho. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Coppola Connections, A Droop Town Limery, Maine, Franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.